Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Welcome to the Federalist Radio Hour. This is Molly Hemingway. I'm senior editor at the Federalist, and I'm joined today by Carrie Severino, uh, who's my co-author on Justice on Trial, our book on the Kavanaugh confirmation and the future of the Supreme Court, and the head of the Judicial Crisis Network, and um, and is a wonderful person to talk about today's news, which is the Dobbs case, which is going to be heard at the Supreme Court this week. Thank you for being here, Carrie. Great to be here, Molly. And maybe you can just start by telling us about the Dobbs case and and what's specifically on the line with the Dobbs case. Yeah, this case has to do with a, a law passed in Mississippi that effectively um, limits abortion to the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. Um, and it, it does include a, a exception for if there's a, a actual medical emergency on the part of the mother, but generally speaking, it is limited to the first 15 weeks. Now, uh, most people, uh, you know, the, I think the vast majority of abortions would happen before that. And uh, most people by that point, you know, you're, is, is when you're able to go in and see an actual child on the ultrasound. So I think that the, the practical question of the timing of this law is actually something that hits where a lot of Americans are on abortion, which is that they would rather see it limited to earlier uh, phases. However, the law has a big problem legally, which is that under the current uh, interpretation of the Constitution by the Supreme Court, you cannot, as a state, limit abortions before the age of viability, which is really more in the in the early 20 week range. And it, it's, of course, because that's a scientific question and not really a legal question, that's sort of a malleable standard. You know, at the time when the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision came down in 1992 uh, that, that set out viability as a standard that you can't legislate before, um, that the, the, the the age of viability was a little different. It keeps moving up because our technology is better. But the, the key takeaway is Mississippi's uh, law, as um, moderate as it is on abortion, is running headlong into the current Supreme Court precedent. And so this is an opportunity for the court to really reconsider that precedent and question, it, uh, is Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the case that that really kind of reinterpreted um, Roe uh, in a in a but it, while upholding uh, its core decision that that uh, abortion has to be protected under the Constitution, and, uh, re, re, really reconsidering those two cases. Okay, so actually, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Roe and a little bit about Casey. I know that you are a former clerk at the Supreme Court. You know these issues really well. And a lot of people are familiar with the names of those decisions and even what they're largely about. But could you kind of take us back to 1973 when Roe was decided and explain what it set out and then also what happened with the Casey decision? Yeah, so Roe uh, was this 
watershed case because it found for the first time in American history that there is a, apparently a right to have an abortion hidden somewhere in the Constitution. And I say hidden because there, there is no text, of course, in the Constitution that talks about abortion. And the Constitution itself contemplates that everything that's not given to the federal government as an authority or prohibited to the states by the Constitution or its later amendments is something that states can legislate on. And of course, for all of American history, states have been uh, legislating on abortion and in most cases, forbidding abortions. Um, so it clearly was never something that's in the text of the Constitution was never understood to be part of the Constitution or or any of its amendments. Um, but then in 1973, the court, by finding emanations from penumbras of other rights, uh, decided, well, there's a right to privacy in the Constitution, uh, you know, coming from things like the right against search and seizure and things like that. So we're, we're going to find this right and we're going to say what could be more personal to a woman than than abortion. And so we're going to make that a constitutional right. It's a case that was criticized from the get-go because I think even even pro-choice liberal scholars, people like Lawrence Tribe, really radical liberal. He, you know, most recently was an advisor to the Obama administration and now on, on President Biden's Supreme Court Commission. But, uh, you know, he, he at the time said, basically, Roe isn't even trying to do law here. It's really trying to do policy. So even people who agree with the policy outcome that want a broad abortion rights also recognize that that Roe doesn't stand on good ground. You now Roe talked about this tr three trimester framework and what states could regulate in those different trimesters. So you, the states um, in the, in the first trimester, basically they said you know the mother. The, the right of the mother to have an abortion is, is basically absolute. In the last trimester, the state might have some interest in protecting fetal life um, because it's farther along. And, and so they, they use that framework. Um, later in 1991, um, and then it was a case was decided, I guess, in 1992, there was uh, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case. And this is a, a case, there were several intervening cases where, you know, the court was re-looking at and, and in some ways uh, you know, changing around the edges how, in, in deciding how abortion law would look like. But Planned Parenthood versus Casey was the most recent opportunity where a lot of people thought maybe the court's going to just go all the way and overturn Roe because it, again, had been recognized from the beginning as a, is really not a, a well-founded legal decision. It was out of step with other American aspects of American law, like laws that protect fetal life, say, if you attack a pregnant woman uh, and, and then kill her baby, most states will say, yeah, that's, that's manslaughter or that's that is a crime that, that they could sue you for, that you might be able to be prosecuted for. But Roe kind of turns that on its head. So in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court reconsidered it, came to the brink of overturning Roe. But then a three-justice um, uh, trifecta decided to uh, come, come back and actually reaffirm and then effectively rewrite Roe. And that was Justices O'Connor and Souter and Kennedy, um, who said, basically, you know, for the for the sake of the court's legitimacy was the was the best reasoning they could come up with. We're going to continue to reform this, re, re uh, interpret this. We'll affirm that the basic holding of Roe, and then they instead of following the trimester framework that Roe came up, they basically just drew the line at viability, and that's the that's the regime we're on now. So the states before viability cannot forbid abortion and they and they sort of invented a new standard that called the undue burden standard you can't states can't put an undue burden on a woman having an abortion it's not a standard that exists anywhere else in american law and this is 
um, pretty typical of abortion law, that it tends to be something that they kind of, uh, that is sui generis. They, they tend to take the regular rule of law standards you apply to other cases, don't necessarily apply in the abortion field. And we've seen that when it comes to the First Amendment free speech, when it, when it touches on abortion, we've seen that uh, when it comes to what standing parties normally have to bring a case before the court, it kind of goes off the rails there. And then in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they did the same thing with stare decisis. Normally, a decision as legally problematic as Roe uh, would not have continued to be followed. Uh, But they basically added a new prong to the typical things a court looks at to decide whether they continue to follow erroneous former decisions. And they just said, well, for the sake of the court's legitimacy, we're going to do this. Of course, how how following erroneous decisions bolsters the court's legitimacy, I don't I don't see. And I think a lot of Americans recognize that as well. I think those justices envisioned it would put it put the issue to rest. It clearly didn't. And we're still fighting this argument today. Carrie, I think that that's what's fascinating about the original Roe decision is you can tell that they think, oh, this will take the issue and just settle it. And it did so much the opposite of settling the abortion issue. It created decades of strife and conflict all while prohibiting people from having a really important role in the process of deciding what the laws in their states are. Um, And then you see this again with the Casey shenanigans where they, you know, as you point out, they say for the legitimacy, for the sake of the legitimacy of the court. Well, when you and I wrote Justice on Trial, we interviewed more than 100 people, and that included, you know, everyone who was involved in the Kavanaugh confirmation up to and including Supreme Court justices themselves. And one of the things we heard a lot from people was that the court had mishandled this issue of its own legitimacy through the way it had made some decisions or avoided making some decisions. And so now we are back here at Dobbs and... I do think there are questions about the legitimacy of the court and how they handle this. You wrote a wonderful op-ed in on foxnews.com about some of these issues. Can you talk to us about how you see the legitimacy of the court being affected in how they handle this case? Yeah, I mean, I think ironically, these people are right that the legitimacy of the court hangs in the balance with the way they address this case, but maybe not in the way that they think, because the legitimacy of the, of the court uh, really is not about a popularity contest of do do Americans think that they like the outcome of every decision on the court. That is not what fundamentally gives the court legitimacy. What gives the Supreme Court legitimacy is its its consistent following of the rule of law. That means you apply the same laws to the same standards to laws you like and laws you don't like. It means you apply the same standards to laws that touch on one topic and another topic. So abortion doesn't get its own set of rules as opposed to every other area of American law, simply because it happens to be a hot button political issue with lots of um, money from, uh, you know, from the big abortion industry uh, feeding into American politics on this issue. And what I think has harmed the the um, institution of the court, and interestingly, none other than Justice Ginsburg has kind of commented on this as well, and, and it was something that came up in her confirmation hearing. She had written about how Roe, as you pointed out, they wanted to settle this issue, and what happened is the court did the exact opposite. By turning it into a constitutional question and then saying, well, only the Supreme Court can now address this question, it really ossified the debate. So now, instead of having... 
um, this debate carried out in the legislatures of all the states across the country in in and people being able to hammer out compromises which really most Amer- most of America is somewhere in the middle on this issue and is really in flux it's something we've seen change over time but you have the legal standard now kind of uh, written into stone where it wasn't even in, you know by being made up by justices where it wasn't even in the Constitution in the first place so Justice Ginsburg had been critical of Roe because she thought it would have been better to let this issue kind of play out in the political process. What we've seen is by bringing it into the court, it made the court more the focus then of all of that political energy. In the confirmation process has become uh, deformed and politicized as a result, as we obviously had a lot to tell about in Justice on Trial, because that, that was one of the big issues that fed the hysteria around the Kavanaugh confirmation, particularly with Kennedy having been one of the key voices upholding Roe in the Planned Parenthood decision, and then a lot of people perceiving that Kavanaugh might uh, change that, that uh, precarious balance on the court. Now, of course, with Justice Barrett replacing Justice Ginsburg, uh, that that balance has shifted even further. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, the the problem for the court's legitimacy is the perception that it is behaving politically. And if the court can get out of this political game of being the ones to set abortion policy for the nation, that in the long run will be the best thing for the court's legitimacy. It will decrease the incentives people have to... um, to threaten and intimidate, to try to intimidate the justices into ruling their way because the court will just say, I'm sorry, this issue is is off our plates. You can bring all this political energy and have these, these full-throated debates uh, in the states, which is really where the Constitution left this issue. And can you just, again, explain the legal mechanics by which Dobbs might resolve some of the problems with Roe and Casey, just like for a non-attorney. Can you explain how that might work? Yeah. So previous cases that have come to the court, including Planned Parenthood itself, um, have had Planned Parenthood versus Casey itself, have uh, often kind of changed maybe in small ways the, the, out, the way that abortion is dealt with, but never had hit really at the heart of it. So, for example, in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there were some provisions, including things like waiting periods on abortion, uh, that the the Supreme Court upheld. And we've seen this in different states, depending on where you are. You might have a a certain amount of waiting period before uh, before proceeding with abortion. You might be required to be given certain information about fetal development or uh, given the opportunity to see an ultrasound of, of your child before making the decision. So all of those laws are things that the that courts have been able to say, okay, well, we can uphold this this law while not not unsettling uh, Casey. So it, we'll say that we'll just start redefining what constitutes an undue burden. And we'll say, well, this isn't a burden and this isn't a burden. So you can kind of eat away at the edges. Dobbs, that is not a possibility because as, as much as viability is, uh, is a flexible standard because technology is always changing, no one anywhere believes that a 15-month-old a child could survive outside the, uh, the mother, 15 week old child could survive outside the mother's room. So it's clear, it's a law that simultaneously is very reasonable. In fact, it's more liberal than most European democracies have uh, right now, where most of them cut it off after the first trimester. It probably would be very popular in, in a lot of areas of the country, and yet simultaneously is clearly contrary to to Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe versus Wade. So the court, if it wants to uphold this law, doesn't have a lot of options. We know they love to kind of take a small stepwise 
um, decision whenever they have the opportunity. And they've done that in many abortion cases thus far. This is not a case that presents that opportunity. So the court would have to go in and either overturn Mississippi's law, which I think a lot of most commentators I don't think is a real I believe it's a real likelihood in this case, or they have to invent a new standard because it can't survive under the Planned Parenthood versus Casey standard. They'd have to invent a new standard or they have to just acknowledge that Roe and Casey have no real constitutional footing. And um, so I think that is going to be the real question of what happens with this. Which choice does the court make? Do they do they actually make a clear decision that acknowledges how poorly founded um, Roe and Casey are? Or are they going to try to find a way to, you know, invent a new standard out of whole cloth. Uh, I, I hope they don't go that way. It's, it wouldn't, it, it would be certainly better than overturning the law, but I think that would um, really undermine the entire role of the judiciary. Again, that, that would be an act it's like against how, the How much longer do they want to continue with this like decrepit regime before dealing with it? Yeah. I mean, if you want to get out of the abortion regulation, you know, discussion business, which I, I think the court clearly does, they don't love hearing hot button cases that put them at the center of controversy. The easiest way to do that happens to also be the legally most correct way, which is say, hey, you know what? The Constitution doesn't give this to us as a so, job. Carrie, the court has had in its past other flawed decisions or problematic decisions. How have they dealt with those, you know, whether it was decisions upholding slavery or internment camps or like, what are some other decisions mm -hmm. where they've had to deal with having had previous uh, iterations of the court making bad decisions? How do they handle it? Oh, right. I mean, you mentioned uh, the dread, alluded to the Dred Scott case, which of course is one of the um, lowest moments, if not the lowest moment in an American uh, uh, Supreme Court law where where uh, the, the court declared that a black man was was effectively property as a matter of law. And um, but I but I think you have take other examples, for example, Plessy versus Ferguson. This is a case that said that separate but equal was still somehow consistent with uh, the 14th Amendment uh, requirement of uh, equal protection. And Later, then what the court overturned that case in a in a the Brown versus Board of Education case. There are many other cases situations in which the court has gone back and said, "Hey, you know what? This case is 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 really uh, poorly founded, and we're going to go back and uh, reconsider and 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 overturn it." That's happened in cases uh, like the Citizens United case involved overturning a prior precedent that was inaccurate. Uh, recently, the court the the court overturned a case called Abood, which had to do with. Um, forcing public sector union members to be uh, to be funding union speech that they disagreed with on on um, on principle. So there there are the court the court regularly does this and literally every single member of the court has overturned cases in their history. And Justice Kavanaugh actually had a great concurrence in a recent case um, where he talked about stare decisis. Um, and he said, look, every member of this court has overturned cases. The Obergefell case um, that declared a right to same-sex marriage um, overturned a previous case. So it's like th th this isn't something that is somehow uh, never done. It's something that actually happens on a, on a relatively regular basis. I think the challenge is um, people would always rather not overturn the cases that they agree with and, and then claim that anyone who does uh, – take issue with those is somehow, you know, breaking this huge history and precedent. You know, the fact of the matter is everyone realizes that we we shouldn't be following uh, gravely erroneous cases. And 
Back to the legal mechanics here is the idea that, you know, we don't know exactly what will be done, but a likely scenario is that somehow this will be returned to the states as an issue that that gets to be worked at at the legislative level so that people are able to weigh in state by state or what you know, it's not like they're going to find that, in fact, unborn children have a constitutional right to life. It's not like it's going to be that much protection for the unborn. It's going to be more likely that it returns to the states. Or what are the likely possible outcomes of, uh, of a decision here that does not uphold the Roe regime? Uh, right. So the, uh, there are people who are in, in amicus briefs who are making the argument that actually under the, the Equal Protection Clause, of the Constitution, all all people, including those who are unborn, should receive constitutional protection. If the court adopted that, then, you know, uh, you truly would have to have abortion um, declared illegal throughout the country. I don't think that's a like, likely, frankly, even if even if a majority of the justices thought that was the correct reading, in this case, Mississippi, does the, to, to uphold the Mississippi law, they don't need to go that far. So the court very rarely would go farther than it needs to, to uh, decide a case. And I think a lot of people mistakenly assume that that would be the result if Roe is overturned. They assume that if Roe is going to over, be overturned, I think the surveys show like 65% of people think that means abortion is illegal nationwide. That's simply not the case. Um, if Roe is overturned, it goes back to the way it was in 1972, which was that states had a wide range of different abortion regimes. And we can already see that states are kind of preparing for this, seeing that it's a real possibility on the horizon. And so you'll, I mean, you have states like New York who want to protect abortion to the moment of birth, you know, and uh, then there's states like Texas who are, are concerned that after a child has a heartbeat that they shouldn't be able to be aborted. There's going to be a wide range. And I think it's, it's good to see that uh, legislators are working through and grappling with this issue. That's that's what they really are supposed to be uh, doing in a regular system. And I I, uh, I think even again, some liberal commentators have recognized that for all of the sky is falling rhetoric that we get from the uh, the abortion lobby on the left, uh, it, it, it this is not something that's going to do have to be a dramatic change. Again, you look at look at um, Europe. You have people who are saying, well, women women will be dying in the streets or they're going to, you know, women will be cut out of the workforce. We know we simply know that's true. You and I both are mothers who are able to participate in in, in um, the professional world as well. We know that in Europe, that's a reality for women as well, despite the fact that their abortions, um, broadly speaking, they're not able to have abortions after the first trimester of pregnancy. It's simply uh, false to claim that those those things necessarily follow from each other. So I think it, there will be a lot of, you know, people tearing their hair out if that come if that comes about. But in all likelihood, it's not going to it wouldn't be the the, you know, the strongest possible form of the argument, I think it would simply be something that goes back to the states and then, you know, it will work itself out. I'm so glad you mentioned a few things here, including about how extreme America's abortion laws are relative to the rest of the world. I think, you know, we have similarities with North Korea and China, but not with much of you know Europe or um, many countries. It's really interesting how far of an outlier we are. But um, I'm also wondering if if the Supreme Court were to reinforce an obviously unconstitutional precedent in Roe, 
that has repercussions for two different groups. And I'm kind of curious what you'd think about both of them. And, and maybe you're not good to speak on both of these groups, but it would have ramifications for the pro-life movement. Also have ramifications for the conservative judicial movement. What do you think would be the pro-life movement's new strategy if this were to um, handle Roe in the same way Casey did of, you know, uh, inventing a new way to uphold it? And, um, and what do you think would be the situation for the conservative judicial movement, which has argued and brought together such disparate groups who are all united on their belief that the courts should not legislate from the bench so much as just adhere to the Constitution and our laws? Uh, yeah. So in terms of the pro-life movement, I think, first of all, I, I think it's very unlikely they will they will completely strike down Mississippi's law. I think what we would be concerned about is seeing a, a reinvention of, an, of some kind of new standard. But the pro-life movement has shown um, in, in, you know, really over 50 years, because it's been around since before Roe. But uh, I, I think that movement is not going away anytime soon. And they're very creative in, in OK, well, you, you say that one's not going to work. Let's try this angle. And this we'll, we'll be able to find out very quickly because there are already cases um, in line uh, ready on petition to the Supreme Court that address a whole host of different types of regulations on abortion. So we're going to the court, again, will not get out from under this case by by trying to um, rework uh, Casey and Roe in this situation, they have other cases coming up before them that address a whole range of different potential uh, timeline limitations on abortion, as well as things that would limit, say, abortions that are sex selective, which we know is unfortunately a reality uh, across the world and in America as well, um, particularly against uh, against baby girls and uh, race selective abortions and abortions that discriminate against those with Down syndrome or other disabilities. So there, there will have many opportunities to reconsider these questions. And I think the, the pro-life movement will be working in those areas um, if the court and, and trying to trying to help, um, you know, make room for uh, for those their voices within whatever the new standard is, if it were if it were uh, invented in terms of the conservative legal movement, I think that would be a a real blow simply because uh, what we have here are justices, um, the majority of whom uh, have uh, spoken of their commitment to originalism and textualism. That's the understanding that we interpret the Constitution according to its words, not according to what we wish it said, what we think it ought to say, what we think people might want it to say, but what actual words were were ratified by the American people. It's the idea. Uh, this is really a question of whether our our self governance is still intact because if a, if a court of uh, a bare majority of five unelected judges can effectively rewrite those laws and that and that constitution ratified by the American people, we, we are no longer um, governing ourselves. We're being governed by by an unelected uh, judiciary, and uh, the we have justices who have committed to this understanding of the constitution, and you know I I, I don't think that that. Um, if if they if I excuse me, flinch in the face of the of coming down with a difficult decision, not difficult in in the intellectual way, it's a very clear cut answer. If you look at the original understanding of the Constitution, if you look at the words, it's a very easy question whether Roe and Casey are good law. But if they flinch in the face of all of this pressure and say, well, we're going to uphold this even though it's bad law, I think that would be very demoralizing for. Um, a movement that has really committed itself to 
the idea that we that we are a nation of laws and not of men that we need to interpret these laws faithfully whether we like them or not and it would it would uh, make those justices um, that weren't willing to stand by the legal results um, because of their political uh, repercussions and I think it would re- reveal them to be uh, fundamentally political actors in that case rather than judges and that would be uh, that would be a huge blow to the conservative legal movement that has committed itself so firmly to this uh, idea of the rule of law that is uh, very well put and i think it's a good note on which to end our discussion and i hope you can come back and discuss some other cases that are being heard by the court this term and what the results of those are at a future Federalist Radio Hour. Uh, But I thank you for your time. And until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 